the La Crosse Public Library Archives presents Dark Lacrosse Stories, a series in collaboration with the La Crosse Tribune. Dark Lacrosse is a suite of programs that feature the seedier side of lacrosse history and also include a downtown walking tour, a trolley tour, and an annual stage production with new content each year. She was a student of mine at Central High School. She was on the honor roll and a very hard worker. Everyone liked her. Students, the faculty, everyone. She had the sweetest personality and could just light up a room with her smile. She was very good in science, was selected as co-president of the Wisconsin Junior Academy of Science. That's quite an achievement for a sophomore. She was a talented pianist and had a lovely singing voice. I've been the advisor of Central's Drama Club, The Maskers, for several years. She was a fine actress as well as being an exceptional organizer. She served as our vice president. She was so lovely, so full of promise. It's hard to believe what's happened. Every fall, our community marks a grisly anniversary. On October 24th, 1953, Evelyn Hartley disappeared. She was 15 years old and had been asked by a fellow professor of her father's, Vigo Rasmussen, to babysit their 20-month-old daughter. After that night, no one would ever see Evelyn Hartley again. Lacrosse Police Chief George Long would later recall the events of that evening. Yeah, there was a big homecoming football game that night. The State College here in Lacrosse versus River Falls. It seemed like most of Lacrosse was at the game. Many of my men were there trying to keep order. I was surprised when we got a call from dispatch that a college professor way on the east side of town on Heschler Drive claimed that his daughter was missing. She was babysitting and didn't call her parents on time. My first thought was some boyfriend came by and convinced her to leave with him to some party out in the country. Turns out that wasn't the case. Professor Rasmussen and his wife had just moved into a new ranch-style house. When I got there, the baby was safe, but... Evelyn was nowhere to be seen. The only things we found for sure were her eyeglasses, her shoes, and some blood under a window at the neighbor's house. There were signs of a struggle in the living room. One neighbor said they heard a girl scream at about 7.15 p.m., but shrugged it off as kids playing in the neighborhood. The crime scene wasn't cordoned off. All kinds of people disturbed the ground around the Rasmussen house, especially gawkers, the morning after the news hit the paper. Us law enforcement officers didn't have the high-tech tools to help. We had to go on our eyes and our guts. Heck, the mobile state crime laboratory didn't even get there until the following Monday morning. Police believe Evelyn was taken through the yard as bloodhounds were able to pick up her scent for two blocks. At Cooley Drive, they believe she was placed in a vehicle and driven away. Searchers included law enforcement officers, the National Guard, Boy Scouts, and La Crosse State College students and faculty, while Civil Air Patrol and Air Force helicopters were also utilized in the massive search. A vehicle inspection program was implemented, and gas station attendants were instructed to check cars for bloodstains. Once your car was cleared, you were given a My Car is OK sticker. Eventually, Evelyn's father would make a heart-wrenching plea. I'm appealing to the abductor to return my daughter, Evelyn. Wherever you may be, and whether she is 
dead or alive, her mother and I want her returned. If you have any regard for the feelings of her parents, you'll bring our daughter back. The FBI considered entering the investigation under the Lindbergh Law. The law permits the FBI to enter a kidnapping case after seven days have elapsed on the assumption that the kidnapper had crossed state lines by that time. On Halloween of 1953, the news was announced that the FBI would not enter the case because there was no evidence that a federal offense had been committed. The next few days, hope would be elevated after discovering a pair of Goodrich tennis shoes with a definite suction cup marking found to match the footprints at the crime scene. The shoes had been found in the nearby community of Coon Valley. The investigation into the shoes revealed human blood matching Hartley's blood type, that the owner of the shoes drove a Whizzer motorbike, and that they had been worn by two different people, the latter of which having feet too small for the size 11 shoe. A denim jacket was found soon after the new year of 1954. It was discovered near the site where the tennis shoes were discovered, and it also was stained with Hartley's blood. There was a worn mark on the back of the jacket, possibly indicating that the wearer was a steeplejack. The jacket was a size 36, a puzzling size for someone who had also worn a size 11 shoe, but had been altered to shorten its length while leaving the sleeves at original length. In May of 1954, mass lie detector tests were conducted on lacrosse area schoolboys in an attempt to uncover any information. Initially, over 1,700 students and faculty were marked to be tested. Only 300 would actually be tested after a University of Wisconsin psychologist, Dr. Carl Smith, gave an interview to the Associated Press that shut the program down. Lie detector tests are a mass application of third-degree methods. This is a dangerous use of a device that's not even recognized in the courts. The tests, even though given allegedly on a voluntary basis, are equivalent to a beating. There's nothing voluntary about submitting to the tests, however. If a pupil fails to submit, he'll be suspected by members of his society. Even in the hands of experts, these tests are filled with errors. The lacrosse tests are a dangerous experiment. Several promising suspects arose. By the time a year had passed, Sheriff Robert Scullin said his office had interrogated at least 400 people and had questioned nearly 1,200 local persons. Detective Leo Kim estimated his team had questioned nearly 3,500. Among the long list of suspects, there was one that was exceptionally horrifying. The suspect's name was Ed Gein. He was born in La Crosse on August 27, 1906, with his family living on La Crosse's north side for a few years before settling in Plainfield, a small town in central Wisconsin. On the morning of November 16, 1957, a Plainfield hardware store owner named Bernice Warden had gone missing. The following day, her decapitated body was discovered in a shed on Gein's property. She had been shot by a 22 caliber rifle and had been dressed out like a deer. Searching the house, authorities recoiled at what they discovered, a horror show too grotesque and disturbing to describe in detail. Known as the Butcher of Plainfield, Ed Gein is the American Horror Story. He is the major influence of many fictional serial killers in literature, TV, and film. After his arrest, it was discovered that Ed Gein had been visiting his aunt in La Crosse a few blocks away from the Rasmussen house on Heschler Drive at the time of Evelyn's disappearance. The thought of her in the clutches of this monster was almost too much to bear. However, police were unable to prove that any of the remains found on the property were from Hartley. Ed Gein denied any involvement in the case and had successfully passed two lie detector tests. In late November of 1957, Authorities announced that Ed Gein had been cleared of any connection to the case. 
He would later be declared insane and died of respiratory and heart failure due to cancer in the Mendota Mental Health Institute in 1984 at the age of 77. Today, many still consider him to be a suspect. Even though this crime was conducted in 1953, there are still amateur detectives investigating this case today. It has become a national horror story, having been covered over the years by many major media national outlets. In the end, only questions and mystery remain. Did Evelyn know her abductor, or was the assailant a drifter? Was the intended victim supposed to be another babysitter who usually watched the Rasmussen children? Was it a burglary or a sex crime? All we have is questions and a sick feeling that develops in the pit of the stomach when we ponder the question, what happened to Evelyn Hartley? now I'd like to welcome in Anita Taylor-Doring, Senior Archivist and the Archives Department Manager at the La Crosse Public Library, who did some of the initial research for this story. This story of the disappearance of a high school babysitter from an average, middle-class, white, Midwest home terrified the nation in 1953. People who had treated La Crosse as a traditional small town where neighbors knew each other and no one locked their doors was now a thing of the past after Evelyn's disappearance. While I've worked at the La Crosse Public Library archives for over 30 years, this is the case that the La Crosse public remembers and those new to the community hear from their neighbors. People who lived in La Crosse during this time have talked about the immediate effects of this horrible event. For instance, I've been told that every property owner bought glass or cement blocks or bars and closed off their basement windows. Young women and small children needed to be more closely supervised and always went out in groups. Every young man was a suspect. Men traveling alone, transients and criminals were stopped and questioned about the case. In 2005, a local writer and personal historian, Susan Hessel, was commissioned to write Evelyn's story from the time of her disappearance to the effects it had on this community. The book titled Where's Evelyn includes snippets of her interviews and even letters of female friends to a Central High classmate who was elsewhere for the fall in 1953. Hordes of young people scoured the entire county looking for Evelyn's body. These search parties were well organized. Here are some of their words that summarize the mood of La Crosse. One letter of the time stated, 
Everybody's looking for the Boy Scouts, the auxiliary police, and everybody. We're going down about 1.30 p.m. to the police station and help. I bet everyone from Central will be there. At least two people Hessel interviewed for her book commented, I don't know what I would have done if we had found her. It was very, very scary. And another remarked, It was crazy to ask these young people to do that. They were too young. It would have been a horrible experience if they had come across her body. Homecoming was the following week at Central High School, but most activities were either canceled or postponed. We won't have Silly Hat Day this week on account of poor Evie. Nobody feels like it. They aren't going to have any skits at the pep assembly either. They are going to postpone the fall festival in respect for Evie Hartley. Everybody thought it would be better that way. Eventually, the students voted to cancel the annual festival, including float building, election of a queen, and the homecoming parade. The students instead wanted to put the time and money they would have spent on the festival towards helping solve the disappearance of Evelyn. One letter reflected the fears of young women. Isn't it a dreadful thing about Evelyn Hartley? We are all so shocked and scared too. My nerves have been on edge that I'm almost sorry I took this downstairs apartment. This is a dark neighborhood and I'm getting so I try to get home before dark. Many years later, a man who was 14 years old at the time of Evelyn's disappearance reflected on the impact in the community. The Hartley abduction caught the attention of the media across the country and for a time adversely affected the economy of La Crosse. Within the city limits, few people left their homes or traveled alone after dark. The whole community was on edge and visibly shaken by the horrible crime. Movie theaters and restaurants remained empty for quite a while. I know my friends and I weren't going anyplace alone. Parents of small children were unable to get a babysitter for months. Mayor Henry Ahrens made a plea in the La Crosse Tribune, hoping that a way could be found to ensure the safety of those caring for children, as most parents refused to allow their daughters to babysit. The police chief took the opportunity to remind the community of the 10 p.m. curfew ordinance and strictly enforced it. By year's end, the La Crosse police reported that they had questioned 1,500 persons and examined 600 cars in the case. They also had met with 100 families living in the neighborhood near the Heschler Drive home. Police Chief Long recalled how hard it was to imagine someone carrying out such a crime and leaving so few clues. Even 66 years on, the mystery surrounding the disappearance of Evelyn Hartley remains. Needless to say, you can check out a copy of Sue Hessel's book from the La Crosse Public Library and visit the La Crosse Public Library archives to read the newspaper articles firsthand. Thanks for listening.